Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 353 of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by Advanced Compliance Solutions. Today I have with me Doreen Edelman. Doreen is the co-leader, global business team at Baker Donaldson in Washington, and we take a deep dive into the Telia Company's FCPA enforcement action, the top enforcement action in FCPA history. Also, the most significant FCPA enforcement action in 2017. We go into the background facts of the case. We discuss why the fine and penalties were so high, the involvement of top management. We take a look at the role of the board. And then we take a very interesting look at some of Doreen's thoughts on the lessons learned from the case. Lessons learned from the compliance practitioner's perspective, from the CCO's perspective, from the senior management's perspective perspective, and also the board. We also consider what this case tells us, if anything, about FCPA enforcement going forward. It's a fascinating look at the most important FCPA enforcement action in 2017. I know you will get a lot out of it, and I think that uh, Doreen will present to you some concrete points that you can bring up when you discuss the case with senior manager. This is Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, back for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, you are in for a real treat because I have Doreen Edelman. She is the co-leader of Global Business Team at Baker Donaldson. And not only is she one of the top white-collar and FCPA practitioners around, but we have the case of cases to talk about, which, of course, is the Telia Company FCPA Enforcement Action. So with that somewhat long-winded introduction, Doreen, thanks uh, so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Absolutely. So uh, let's just hop right into it, because this was the number one FCPA enforcement action in the history of the world ever, exceeding the Siemens case, which uh, held the uh, reign Reigned for approximately nine years. Yeah. Um, nine, $965 million, uh, literally uh, corruption all the way to the top of the organization and all the way down a massive bribery scheme where $331 million was paid out and uh, approximately $500 million of ill-gotten gain was received by Telia. International enforcement international investigation, international cooperation, and international penalties. And uh, people who are actually going uh, at least uh, have been indicted and arrested in Sweden, individuals. So um, with that, I guess, Doreen, I wanted to start with, what are some of the, the background or basic facts that really uh, struck you about this case that make it so unique? Well, I just want to add one thing to your initial comments. The penalties, if you do the calculation of the offense level and the culpability, the penalties could have been as high as uh, 1.5 billion, which is unfathomable, I think. And especially when we're talking, this isn't a, a global corruption case in that it didn't take place on three or four continents in a variety of countries. I mean, this is one clear uh, corruption country. It involved other countries. In fact, it involved 13 countries. But the actual corruption itself, the offense, took place with one country, with one individual even. Okay, so uh, with that having been said, yes, this uh, 
case involves the Department of Justice and the SEC in the United States, and they both alleged that this company and its uh, subsidiary in Uzbekistan from the middle of 2007 to at least 2010 authorized, so the executives, there wasn't just the payments made, that the executives actually authorized the payments to the daughter of the president of Uzbekistan. And they did this in order to gain access and market share to the telecom industry. And the way it began uh, was Telia, Telia, a Swedish company, decided they wanted to enter the market. So they talked to this government official and they offered her a stake in the local company. And they did that by setting up a Gibraltar-based shell company. And then they gave her, well, in addition to the 26% ownership interest they were going to give her, she also wanted $32 million in cash for this initial part of the transaction. And they did that, and they set it up. And then they had the rights to the, the market, but what they didn't have were all the frequencies they needed. So when they went back and they wanted the 3G frequency and the 4G frequency, they made additional payments through the uh, more uh, offshore companies. And uh, they did that a couple of times. And the evidence uh, also showed that there's uh, emails and, you know, phone voicemail now goes to emails. And there, there was evidence showing that executives and members of the management were actually aware of this because uh, they mentioned how much they were actually sort of proud of what they had done and how much money the company was able to generate from uh, their quote investment in the country. Uh, want me to go on and talk about how uh, it was discovered? Uh, sure, because uh, I was really interested by your initial remarks about the sentencing range. And so we had a reduction below the minimum sentence of 25%. And, and I want to work towards how, do they, how on earth did they get to that? Okay, we'll get there. So, you know, and the one warning for anyone in the telecom industry is this case may not be over yet. Because you know, typical in these investigations where there's one red flag or one corruption allegation, uh, there may be others. And this particular individual was not limiting her acceptance of bribes to just one company. In fact, it was working with uh, another company from another country, and they were also paying her. And uh, that local government, the Netherlands, was aware of it and was looking into it. So through that investigation, uh, and the bribes were made to this particular Uzbeki official, and that uh, opened the door to Telia as well. So and are you saying that the Vimplecom investigation by the Netherlands is what uncovered this scheme involving Telia, and the uh, Dutch authorities turned that information over either to the Swedish and or U.S. government authorities? And they prosecuted themselves. Right. Okay. So, yes. Uh, so it's possible you could see even more fallout. They followed the money chain. In this case, as, as we've said, there's, we're talking one individual. 
I mean, she was taking all this money. You'd think at some point there'd be a limit to what you need or what you desire, but it, I guess uh, corruption corrupts. Uh, but what became uh, even more blatant was, as you just said, the Swedes, I guess in the sense, I don't want to say it was public knowledge, but clearly people were aware of it in Sweden because there was a 2012 documentary on Swedish television talking about this Uzbeki official. So then, of course, the Swedish prosecution authority had to open a case. So you now have a case in the Netherlands, you have a case in Sweden, and then apparently there was a tip, a hotline tip, and I, do, I am not familiar with what country that came into, but there was a tip, and I don't think it was the U.S., in the Netherlands or in Sweden about Telia and that there were violations of the anti-corruption laws. And at this point, one would hope that the, country, the company would start to be concerned about this. As I said to you when we were talking uh, before we began the podcast, if this was my client, I would be devastated because you don't ignore red flags regarding corruption. And apparently not only did Telia ignore information on a, a documentary, information that was given to the authorities that there were allegations of corruption, but they still talked about in their email making another payment for, to further expand their market share in Uzbekistan. So when you ask, uh, yeah, how did they get that reduction in a penalty, we're going to talk about how they got it, and it was all about their remedial measures. So, uh, that uh, one question about the facts that uh, your listeners may have would be, well, what does this have to do with the United States? And uh, it has a couple things to do with the United States. Telia was traded in the United States, the stock was. However, they pulled out of that at about the same time that this was discovered. But more importantly, some of these transactions were, they were um, in U.S. dollars and they still went through the U.S. financial institutions. And that is all the U.S. government says it needs in order to reach out its long arm and take jurisdiction over a matter. And some of these email servers that I'm talking about were also in the U.S., and U.S. citizens and U.S. companies were involved in some way or another in the transactions. There could have been banks involved and others. So it certainly gave the U.S. government enough leverage to go ahead and uh, begin an investigation against them. Now, uh, when we talk about the money, you will see that some of the money the U.S. government is not going to be able to add to its coffer because it is going to balance out and give company credit for money that it's paying the Netherlands so they won't get the full benefit of the 965 million yeah okay that's the facts the investigation yeah oh the next big point is um, there's no voluntary disclosure here so right. if you're familiar with FCPA cases, the best thing you can do, the executives, 
the board, senior management, you fall on your sword and you say, we were not aware of this. Of course, we don't support this. And that is how you get your discount. And in this case, Telia did not do that, or at least when it wanted to talk about it, it was too late because the cat was out of the bag and the governments were already aware of it and were already launching investigations. So then the only thing they could do, which is what everybody, every company does, is you start to say, well, we're, we're going to clean up our act. But they did do something uh, quite unusual in cleaning up their act. They really cleaned up their act. Normally, uh, you'll see a company, they may get rid of a mid-level manager that was overseeing the particular country where the corruption took place. But here's what Telia did. They conducted a thorough internal investigation. They made factual presentations to the government. They provided all their people, put them up in front of the government. They didn't require subpoenas or, or uh, other requests. They produced documents from all the foreign countries uh, and they collected and analyzed translated data and when everything was said and done, they terminated all, all individuals involved in the misconduct. They terminated all individuals with supervisory roles over the misconduct, including every board member who took part in the decision to enter Uzbekistan, whether or not there was proof that that particular board member was aware of what was happening. Uh, then they went even further. They created a new and robust compliance function throughout the company. They implemented a comprehensive program and they overhauled the entire corporate governance structure of the company. Now, not only did they, uh, they were able to get the maximum 25% reduction, which is the maximum penalty reduction you can get when you haven't made a disclosure based on uh, the new guidelines that the Department of Justice started with, I think in 2000 and um, the end of 15 or the beginning of 16. Uh, but they also were able to not have a compliance monitor. And Tom, right. I'm sure you're right. familiar with a compliance monitor uh, to a company is, it's a really bad thing. It's like having the IRS live in your corporate offices, right down the hall from the executives for a couple of years. They so listen, they yeah, watch. I worked yeah. in a company with a monitor, so I can personally attest to that. And, and to me, you know, people ask, well, so what's better, to get a bigger reduction in your fine or to have a lesser reduction in your fine but not have the monitor? What's your opinion? Uh, having a corporate monitor was the worst corporate experience yeah. of my life. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say that too, not even being in your seat. You literally can't do anything without someone watching you, right? right. Exactly. Just, so I think it is, this is a, uh, I mean, this is huge, especially as you pointed out in the beginning, I mean, this is a slam dunk, very simple on the basis 
any corruption case. You've got one person. They took the money. The government or the, I mean, the company is, is acknowledging that, yes, they did this. They've provided all this data to show that executives were aware of it, were participating in it. And they still were able to clean up their entire company's uh, perception and attitude and tone and actions and everything that they could get out of having a compliance monitor. And I, I have to believe, I don't know, but I would think the fact they must have been able to show that they were clean in other parts of the world, that they, they weren't trying to get their hands around an entire global system with corruption from one end of the world to the other, that they had this very bad activity that happened. It wasn't noticed. It wasn't stopped. It wasn't questioned properly. Due diligence wasn't done at all. And they were able to convince the government that they could fix that and identify to the government that they had done that by the end of the deferred prosecution process to be able to get out of the monitor. So Doreen, if you uh, were in front of your clients or, or in front of clients, how would you use this case to really help them understand uh, the lessons learned for the compliance function from this case, since it was so outrageous? Well, it's certainly going to be... Uh, you know, on everybody's slide training, that's for sure, because it's a, I mean, you, you could spend a lot of time on this case. Uh, there are a lot of takeaways from this, especially for when you're training senior managers in the board. They cannot self-blind. They cannot say they didn't know. They can't believe that they don't have any responsibility. Because as you said, uh, the U.S. didn't have to do it, but the Swedish government, the day after this deferred prosecution agreement, they came out against three of the executives with criminal complaints. And, and that's, that's a powerful lesson. I mean, the first one is do not participate in any corruption. And I know there's some cases that are not simple that they're gray areas, that uh, companies thought they were making a donation to a charitable fund helping a local community. You know, those cases at least have some gray. In this case, it's black and white. In this day and age, you know, everybody's on board with anti-corruption. When I first started with anti-corruption back when the act, when the FCPA came out in, uh, 87, 88, the rest of the world uh, was chuckling at us. I remember I, I did an article in the Japanese paper and some of my Japanese friends were just chuckling because the U.S., how are we going to change the mindset of the world? And if you fast forward to today, you've got 183 countries that are part of the U.N. Convention Against Corruption. Not all of them have signed it. 140 have signed it. But the point is, you've come a really long way. You've got the African Union Convention that has 37 African countries ratifying the anti-corruption agreement. So the point is, this is the global standard. You know, I, there, there's no two way about it. So obviously, you just can't do it. The second takeaway from this is tone at the top. Uh, it just shows you how important 
the tone at the top really is. You've got to permeate the company with this attitude. We don't want to succeed uh, at all costs. I mean, and you tell me, because you've been inside a company, is it doable? I mean, you can, I think you can change the culture of companies. Absolutely. Uh, and um, when you have a gun to your head, it actually is great motivation. Oh, that that is the best thing about when you have a client that has been through this, because then there's no holes barred. They understand that they have to clean up in every instance. And like I said, it needs to be from the top to the bottom. I think one thing to tell clients is everyone needs training. I don't care if it's the assistant at the front door or your custodial staff, because you never know when they're taking phone calls, accepting packages. I mean, you can't over-educate. Another takeaway is, I don't know how viable this is, but you do see that what you do makes a difference. Not that you want to get in trouble in the first place, but you it's never too late to start improving your compliance. I mean, even in this case, uh, they're, they're caught, uh, they're eligible or uh, possible penalty, penalties are extreme and they miraculously, through a lot of hard work and a lot of effort, and I'm sure 24 hours effort on the behalf of a lot of people and hiring all new uh, people, all new board members, training these people, but it can be done and you can um, self, self-train. Uh, next takeaway, it also shows you how uh, the U.S. government and most of the other uh, European countries, at least, are really working together. This case involved 13 countries. In the U.S. alone, it didn't just involve the DOJ and the SEC. It involved ICE, enforcement, uh, Customs Enforcement at Department of Homeland Security. It involved the IRS because they were looking at taxes and documentation. It involved um, a Secret Service because Secret Service is involved in money laundering mm. and following the money. So I think compliance has become uh, trendy, for lack of a better word. You. It's not just anti-corruption. It's also know your customer. And that is something uh, uh, that the board and senior management here failed to do. When they first chose Uzbekistan as a country, you know, did they look at the Transparency International score? Did they have anti-corruption questionnaires for the agents and the people they were going to work with in the country? Uh, I don't think they did. And if they did, they didn't properly use those questionnaires to determine this woman's role. And if they did know that this woman was the daughter of the president, uh, there should have been all kinds of checks and balances. Uh, And most companies would never have used the daughter of the president of the country. Uh, Let's see a couple others. Um, Oh, well, uh, if you're in the telecom industry and you're in global telecom and you have uh, entered the Uzbeki market in the last 
10 years or so, I, I would be checking my books and records very quickly and to see if there's anything you need to disclose if the Norwegian or Netherlands government and the Swedes and the U.S. haven't already come knocking on your door. And uh, finally, I think it's going to be uh, harder for companies to deal with anti-corruption investigations in this global, holistic world that the enforcement agencies are going after. Because, I, I, you know, from being on the inside, it, it takes 24-7, you're all on something like this anyway. How are you going to be all on responding to enforcement agencies in several different countries? That That's going to put a lot of burden on companies i don't know maybe that just is added pressure to clean up before or or make sure your ducks are in a row or have a third party audit or do another internal audit but have be ready so that if you get any questions you've got your program your policies your procedures and your authorizations going all the way up to the board in a place where you can easily find them because this is going to be difficult to respond to. No, that's that's a great point to have uh, everything in place so that you can robustly respond because you're going to have to deal with just a plethora of regulators. You're going to have to make a decision when you're going to self-disclose and decide who you're going to self-disclose to and be ready to answer all of those questions in a variety for a variety of different uh, laws as well. So you're absolutely right having it done, having it ready before the uh, disaster hits um, is, I think, even more paramount now. That's a really good question. Just the thought of to which agency, which government you're going to respond to. Right. And if you try, that's, hmm. I mean, this is going to require a, a team of people. Better to avoid the situation if you can. Absolutely. So, um, does this case speak to you at all, Doreen, about where FCPA enforcement may be going under the new administration, recognizing, of course, that a large part of this was done under the prior administration? Nevertheless, we still have, um, you know, the, the Trump administration and the Sessions Justice Department signing off on the largest FCPA settlement ever. Uh, does that say anything to and you? They and were, they were taking full credit for it and very happy to do that. So, uh, you know, I guess good for them. I, I think it gave them a win, and it sees how they can have wins. So uh, I, I don't, I, I mean, you can look at these cases as supporting big business. If you look at them as leveling the playing field, so I don't think you're going to see the stopping. I think it's too much of a win-win for everyone. It's improving global cooperation. It's adding to the prestige of the government agencies. Uh, it's uh, stopping corruption and corruption. Uh, you, you're seeing that you really can make an effect. I mean, many companies now, I mean, they, well, as you've seen, as every company's seen, you get these nice little cards, uh, you know, please don't send us anything for the holidays. We have a policy that we do not give or receive anything. We don't care if it's a box of chocolate or one bottle of wine. 
and it's just there is a uh, an abhorrence or a fear of accepting anything. So I don't see a change. Well, Doreen, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if anyone wanted to follow up with you directly on any of the points you raised. And you had some great points that we could probably unpack on further podcasts. Could they email you? And if so, how would they do it? They can email me at Doreen, D-O-R-E-E-N, Edelman, E-D-E-L-M-A-N is my name. But actually, I've got a very uh, easier email. They can just use D-M-E, Dog Mary Elephant, at BakerDonaldson.com. And that's B-A-K-E-R-D-O-N as in Nancy, E-L-S-O-N.com. Thank you very much. It's great talking to you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the most senior and oldest podcast on FCPA and compliance-related issues. Also, if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join us next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.